You're listening to Lives on the Limes. I'm Catherine Kerr, and this is the podcast series where we traverse the rural rail branch lines of East Anglia to uncover history, community, art and innovation with the people we meet. I've been invited to explore the stories of people living, working and volunteering along the lines by the Essex and South Suffolk Community Rail Partnership that serves these local areas. Community rail partnerships carry out projects to help these branch lines continue to thrive, whether people use them for work, days out, or to experience the beautiful landscapes at the heart of East Anglian life. Today's journey begins at Mark's Tay in Essex, on the main line to and from London and Colchester. I'm getting on board one of Greater Anglia's fantastic, brand new, modern and comfortable trains. This station seems quiet, but actually it's an important junction and the starting point for our journey along the Gainsborough line. This 11-mile line may not take us far in distance, but it certainly does in topics. We'll cross two counties to visit museums and gardens. We'll hear histories, myths, and explore the scenery inspiring some of the greatest English landscape paintings. Let's get on board the Gainsborough line. As we travel through these leafy, tree-lined cuttings, it's easy to forget the changing fortunes of the landscape beyond. Once upon a time, there was no railway, and goods would be moved to and from this area by boat or cart. It certainly would have taken a lot longer, and lives in the villages and towns would have been less conveniently connected. That was until a wave of Victorian entrepreneurship saw the railways roll into town, creating new opportunities for business, trade, and eventually tourism. Wow, we've burst forth into the open to cross a magnificent viaduct. Below I can see the villages of Chapel and Wakescole, and here at the station I'm disembarking to find out how the railways changed history for the eastern counties. As the train pulls away, you're met by the sight of a beautiful steam engine. This must be the way to the East Anglian Railway Museum, where I'm supposed to be meeting Peter Martin. Peter, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to meet you. Yes, it's splendid. Nice of you to come. Bit of an awful day today, but there we go. It's a little bit wet and windy today. But... <laughs> it certainly is, and so is the weather. <laughs> I've just got off the, the train at Chapel and Wakes Colm, and I've just come across the most enormous viaduct. Yes, yes. The viaduct was one of the biggest structures on the railway in East Anglia. When the railway was first conceived in the 1830s as linking Sudbury with uh, Colchester, Basically because the uh, River Stewart navigation had fallen into disrepair. It's got, uh, last count it had 7 million bricks. Well, that's what it started off with in 1849 when it was <laughs> opened. And stands 75 feet above road level. Well, the view is fantastic. <laughs> it's yes, a great it way is. to arrive yeah, here in Chapel. it certainly is. What's really lovely is to arrive here at Chapel and Waits Colne and feel like I've stepped backwards in time to this beautiful museum. Yeah, the building itself was actually the main transshipment shed. It was all the agricultural local produce coming in from the farmland area, so you had agricultural produce going out, Mm -hmm. farm implements and machinery coming in, and there was quite a lot of industry within the area, especially in the Sudbury area, which uh, the whole town developed around. So you have a history on the railways yourself. That's how you've come into this, right? Yeah, I blame my dad. He bought me a train set when I was about six. So, yeah, uh, there's always been an interest in trains, I suppose. Uh, Underneath it all, at the end of the day, it's not so much the trains, it's the history side Mm. of things, which is so vast. 
and the technological evolution and also the social impacts as well on the local communities that these railways had must have been a huge impact at one time. When you look at that viaduct, for instance, mm. down there, when that was first built in the 1830s, when they started laying the first bricks, you think to yourself, what a scar that must have put across the landscape and introduced into the community, which was an isolated, insulated community at mm -hmm. the time, mainly agricultural. Probably not many of the locals would have known where Colchester was or Halstead, except the landed gentry or the, the cattle drovers going down the road. Life existed in a small agricultural community. And then all of a sudden, 1,500 Irish navvies turn up on the scene and build that big pile of bricks down there <laughs> and then put a steam engine on the top. Well, that's never been seen before, is it? I bet the churches were full. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about the history of how, you know, that time when this, this railway was built here? What was the reason for it and when? Well, it was conceived in the 1820s by various entrepreneurial businessmen of the Sudbury area but at the end of the day, they put the money up to build this railway line to link Sudbury with the docks at Colchester, which was an inland port at the time, or an up-and-coming inland port, down at the Hythe. And uh, the river store navigation running through Gainsborough country, through to Constable country, down at Dedham, actually came out at Manningtree, which at that particular time, the, the waterway had fallen in disrepair, the railway mania had taken over with many of the companies already buying up some of the canals and putting them out of business. They were predominantly focused on goods and said that if the passengers, you know, people wanted to travel from A to B, then you could ride in the coal truck. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that's right. Keep so, warm. Well, that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, they, 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 they came along afterwards. There was a more discerning public and they started taking coach bodies off of old stage coaches and putting them on railway chassis wheel, with wheels underneath. And, and that's how the principle evolved until you had purpose-built vehicles up to the point where you are nowadays. So in spite of all the cuts and closures that happened in the 20th century, this line has remained open? And well, it has, yes. It's, it's, it's a survivor, mm. like the rest of the the rest of the things that we've got here, they're all survivors. I think we should go and have a look at some of these survivors. By all means, why not? <laughs> Walk this way. Wow, it's pretty windy out here. It's blowing a proverbial gale, <laughs> but we're actually walking... Well, it's stopped raining now, which is good. Uh, we're actually walking across to our Platform 3 area, which is our main area for giving train rides basically we've, we've this is a proper functioning railway oh platform. yeah yeah it's uh, yeah we don't go we don't line. go far or fast but we give people the flavor of it and there are some absolutely incredible trains sitting on the tracks here oh yeah well we've got a, a vast selection of vehicles that basically go back through the annals of history more or less up to the modern day here with this modern more no, modern i recognize that that's from my lifetime <laughs> that wagon there the rail freight one was probably one of the last ones built by british rail when they actually built rail freight vehicles mm. where we'll are we just heading move these barriers now <laughs> that one there and what we're looking at here is um a diesel locomotive built by the war department in about 1944 Oh, that, that um, definitely the, the looks very one. 1940s. It's looking a bit sad. It wants a coat of paint. It is volunteers. Oh, yes, yes. The, the museum's a voluntary run and administered charity. 
but it does have certain paid staff here. Well, presumably um, because there's an absolutely massive amount of knowledge that you need to have and keep. Well, yeah, to it's, it's the ability like and the interest to do these things. You see, got a group of young lads at the moment. They're uh, up and coming, learning, having taken this black steam engine to pieces yesterday with a yeah. big crane, and the boiler of which is on that wagon. Oh, there's the boiler. Well, we're now in the restoration shed where wow. we can see various bits of steam engine lying around and others that are in working order, oh, nice. looming, looming above. Beautiful, painted, semi-restored or in various states of repair. And they look like you're spanning all the eras here. So this one in front of us, this, this looks familiar. Yes, yeah, well, it, it dates from the 1950s and they were in common sight throughout the railways over many, many years. In fact, not, only, not really disappearing until the sort of middle 1990s. And they're actually a diesel what they call a diesel multiple unit and would have been seen on this branch prior to the newer trains coming in that we've just received. This looks very 1990s. So I feel like this train and I have met before. Yeah. This carriage. <laughs> now, hang on a minute. Now, this is blue. What do you, what do you associate with the blue? Thomas the oh, Tank there you Engine. Go. See, we haven't got a mask big enough for this him. This is a spitting image. It's got, beautiful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's one of the Thomas characters. He's been to Holland, he's been all over. How did you get it to Holland? Big lorry and a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we've got Thomas, we've got Percy and number 11 at the back, the brown one. That's the oldest one we have, that's 1905, number 11. But underneath it are real-life machines which worked in industry. Industry hung on to steam quite late on in comparison to British Railways when they went over from diesel to electric mm. and steam. And industry didn't really turn its back on steam until sort of middle 1980s. 54 alias Thomas was built in 1941 and it worked at uh, a steelworks up in Corby. But you're all still working on this today and giving so much of your time. I mean, you, you well, started as a... I, I worked on the railway for nigh on 40 years myself in a mechanical electrical capacity. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hands-on nuts and bolts technology at the end of the day, base technology. And we're missing out on all these things now. Um, you're finding it difficult to find anybody that knows one end of a screwdriver to a light bulb. It's the, the lines or the, the bits and pieces that remain or the living bits that are restored are all almost like human ideas and ambitions and some of them made it further along than others. Well, and, yeah, and kind of I suppose there was change. always, a, when these railways were shut down in the 60s, it, was, it formed the basis of a big heritage railway movement, which is a massive tourist industry nowadays. Mm -hmm. All these drills and layers, they were built for the very machinery that you're working oh, yeah, on. They were right, built yeah. for specific purposes. Oh, my word. How's that for a watchmaker's... Oh, there's an even bigger one in there. So what yeah. would that have been used for? Well, it goes into that radial drill there. For drilling big holes. Which is about twice the height of myself. Yeah, that's right. It's I'm going to stand well back if this is anything like my technology classes from school. <laughs> you ain't simply operating this <laughs> lady. <laughs> It's a lovely Fitting. thing. Bright green paint, flaky in places, Slightly but still oily. very much functional. I had an Art One Cortina like that. It will never go rusty. <laughs> Covered in oil. It's the best preservative going. <laughs> there we go. Let's try it on my face. Oh, yeah, it didn't do me any good. Peter, thank you so much for showing me around. Oh, this there's so much incredible. more to it. You'll have to come again. I think so. I'd love to. And folks out there, come along and have a look.
I had a brilliant time behind the scenes at the Railway Museum. I'm also amazed at the expertise and inventiveness of the volunteers who mend and revive these relics of the rails. And there's so much to see, including an old rail bus that used to run along this very line, and a mock-up old-fashioned street scene. You can plan your visit by looking at their website earm.co.uk. Onwards now, and we haven't got long before our next stop. I'm super comfy on the brand new Greater Anglia trains here, but there's no time for a snooze or even to enjoy the free Wi-Fi just yet. Instead, let's take in the lowland landscape of the Essex-Suffolk border. Once upon a time, fruit orchards abounded in this area. Essex itself has 34 native varieties of apples, and people have been developing new varieties of apples since Roman times. The Essex Wildlife Trust has restored Sargent's Orchard as a nature reserve here, between Wakescolne and Bures. These orchards also provide unique habitats. If you're lucky, a walk through Sargent's Orchard might let you spot a large card of bee, or common spotted orchids in the grassland. We're entering the Store Valley, and it makes for a picturesque and sheltered spot. At the river's crossing point, we find the village of Bures and the boundary of Essex and Suffolk. Bures was an industrial town which specialised in wool and cloth in the Middle Ages. Let's hop off here and see what's happening in the village today, starting with the famously beautiful station garden. Greater Anglia's volunteer station adopters do work like this alongside the community rail partnerships for communities all across East Anglia, and it definitely makes for a great welcome. The sun has come out, the wood pigeon are singing, and the wind has dropped a little bit, and I'm meeting Jill Jackson here. Hello, Catherine. This gives us a good place to start the station because you will have noticed the amazing garden here. It's stunning. It's so lovely. There's so much colour here. We've got a very lively group of volunteers who, who take care of this station garden. I think it's probably a bigger group than any other similar groups that exist. They're so enthusiastic. They're always looking to improve things for people who use the station and for residents who walk by to enjoy it too, in a fairly casual but still organised way. That's how we like it. <laughs> so as you walk down the hill now, you're resident in Bures and you have been since, is it 1982? That's right, 1982. What's life like here? We love living here. It's such a, such a strong community spirit. There's lots goes on here. And you are quite busy being chairman of the parish council. Yes, that's true. Parish councils seem to have increasing workloads these days. And Bures is quite special, I suppose, because it sits on the border of two counties. So you have not just one parish council around the we area. We have two. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> How does we, that work? We're currently in Essex and the River Stour, which we will come to before too long, um, was the ancient boundary between the East Saxons and the Angles. So the East Saxons were on the Essex side mm, okay, of the river yeah. and the Angles on the north. So it's, it's a very long established boundary and it's currently the boundary between Suffolk and Essex. So being a county boundary means we have two parish councils, oh. two district councils, councillors, represent us, two county councillors, two MPs. So it <laughs> goes right up the system of government, the division, the boundary in Bures. But despite that, it is still very much one village. I'm so glad the sunshine is now out because we're crossing, crossing the main road towards the common and there's weeping willows and silver birches just catching the light and above them a really gorgeous stone church. 
this patch of land was Bioza Common showing on a map of 1600, but the land then extended quite a long way down the Colchester Road as well. Mm -hmm. So in 2011, the field came up for sale and we had to act very quickly because there was a proposal to develop here. It looks fantastic and it's such a great local resource. There are people walking their dogs here as we speak. So tell me a bit about the market that happens here. If there's local produce available, that's provided. This time of year, we get a lot of fruit from local fruit farmers, but we also get vegetables from a local market trader. Some of those goods come from a little further afield, but we always try and get them as locally as possible. We have some excellent meat producers, some very sought after pies and bread and cakes. I wish it was market day today, actually. <laughs> we, we have stalls of people who make things too, which is always interesting going rounds and looking at the crafts and things that they produce. Now, this is Wharf Lane and we're going down to the recreation ground. Beers has had an interesting history. I suppose it's now at its least industrial because in, in medieval times it was the woolen cloth industry that was the main source of income and wealth generation around here. Mm. Then we had, this is Wharf Lane and there were wharfs wharves along here. Bures became a major tourist destination for the working classes from London who came here for boating and fishing. We've just redone this particular landing stage. It was getting a terrific amount of use <laughs> by the visitors. What the, were they launching? Canoes, kayaks? And themselves. Rubber ducks. <laughs> yes. More of them were launching themselves than they were launching boats actually. We're surrounded by hills and I think on one of these hills there is quite a local landmark. Yes, up Cuckoo Hill there's Fish House Farm and beyond that St Stephen's Chapel that's been there since the 9th century. Wow! Oh yes, and beyond St Stephen's Chapel is an interesting recent addition that in the side of the hill, Dragon very like the white horses in other parts of the country, but because we're not in chalk country, in putting that dragon in, it had to be chalked afterwards to keep <laughs> the outline. But it's, it's a wonderful creation from 2012, and that was Geoffrey Probert, who's a local land owner. And is that the same family that restored the chapel in the 1930s? It is indeed. Yes, it is. You can walk up... From the high street you can carry on up Cuckoo Hill and round the corner and to Fishhouse Farm and then there's a track that goes alongside the farmyard down to the chapel and behind the if you go behind the chapel there's a viewing point for the dragon. Ah! Yes. Woo. Yeah. Just got attacked by an oak tree. Yes, these oaks along here were planted to mark the millennium and also the tennis courts, also the site of another recent sports activity in the village and that's pickleball. Sorry? Pickleball, which what? apparently is <laughs> very popular. It's a sort of, so a bit like having a table tennis bat but bigger and a ball and you play on the opposite way across and they have net that they put out specially for, for that game. Wow, okay, so if you're used to playing tennis then it's counterintuitive, but if you're used to tennis and all other racket sports like me, you might stand a chance. Well, I think, I've, I've been told that actually it is excellent for people who um, aren't so good at those other sports. So yes. 
Who knows? Yeah, we might find that we can play it. (laughs) (laughs) What I really like about uncovering the history of places is also kind of the history of myth and legend as well. And the whole dragon thing being put up there on the hillside was for a good reason, wasn't it? That was, because there's a local chronicle that says in 1405, a dragon came up and savaged some sheep and a shepherd and they turned the um, arrows on it and it still didn't, didn't pierce its skin, so fierce was this dragon. Eventually the dragon retreated into Wormingford Mere, which some people believe that dragon is still in Wormingford Mere. Ooh. The most likely source of this myth was the fact that there were exotic animals kept at that time and it could have been a crocodile that escaped from such really? a collection. So there were exotic animals kept in? In quite wealthy land and owners around here. Just to kind of mix up village life a bit. <laughs> Put an alligator or a crocodile in your front room. Maybe it was um, sort it of out. showing off like the Tudors had their wonderful chimneys. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know what? There's a modest amount of chimneys around here. People, people don't seem to have shown off too much. But no, I don't. There think are they buildings did. dating back to Tudor times, right? Yes, there are. On our right now are the offices of W. A. Church, with a very fine carved beam. Wow. With scenes that are picked out in bright colours. They really are bright. You can see a butcher at his block, various other characters, and monkey engaging in unfortunate activity with one hand whilst eating with the other. <laughs> so the incredible little characters along here is really intricate. Just recapping on the chapel as well because I think it was blowing such a gale there. Yes. The legend is that Edmund was crowned there on Christmas Day. King Edmund. King Edmund who was martyred and shot through with arrows and his story is very much part of the story of Bury St Edmunds mm. as well and other, other villages lay claim to him but we we obviously like to lay claim to him here in Bures. Of course why wouldn't you? I think a dog ran off with part of him didn't it? Yeah. Oh gosh well I hope so, it was a good bit. Yeah <laughs> yes I think so. Or was it an alligator? <laughs> the Bures dragon ran off. <laughs> I love my Bures tour. It really is amazing to see so many beautiful buildings, some of them Tudor with Georgian fronts and all impeccably maintained. The 14th century St Mary's Church sits in the heart of the village and if you want to make the walk up to St Stephen's Chapel, you won't be disappointed by the view. Jill mentioned Bures' connection to the crowning of St Edmund. The original patron saint of England was King of East Anglia from 855. That is, until Viking and Norse invaders ravaged the region and murdered him. Years later, he became a cult figure for his refusal to give up his Christian faith and for becoming, under those unpleasant circumstances Jill outlined, a martyr. His remains were moved to a town that would become known as Bury St Edmunds. I'll leave you to wonder why. So if it's true and the last native East Anglian king was crowned here in Bures on Christmas Day in 855, that makes a village extra special indeed. We were already nearly at the end of the line, but our last stop brings us to Sudbury. This line may be short, but it's got more than its fair share of famous folk. If you wondered why it's called the Gainsborough Line, here's the big reveal. I'm heading through Sudbury to the Gainsborough House Museum, 
where the director Mark Bills is going to tell me about how this town produced one of the most influential artists of the English landscape movement. Mark, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. How long have you been here at Gainsborough House? I've been here about seven and a half years. So I live very close to Sudbury and uh, travel in every day. Always a joy. So it's, a, it's a glorious route through the Suffolk countryside. Mm. And you can see why it's a kind of scenery that inspired so many artists. And I always remember when I first came here was how magnificent the skies are partly because a lot of the landscape has a flatness or a gently rolling hillside and you really get a sense and some days there's drama in the skies one side of the sky is completely different from another and it is very very inspiring and I think you know artists like Gainsborough Constable help us to look at the landscape much more and to enjoy it more and to see things that we might have missed. So we better explain why there is a museum here in Sudbury. Of course well there's a museum here because Gainsborough was born um, 1727. He moved to London around 1740, uh, trained there, came back when after he'd married and after his father and his first child had died, moved back to Sudbury for a few years before moving to Ipswich, then to Bath. And then he moved back to London where he spent his sort of final years as we, you know, one of the great figures of the London art world. If you look at portrait and landscape painting when Gainsborough first started, and where they were when he died in 1788, they'd come an enormous way. Certainly he was at the forefront with other artists like Joshua Reynolds and people, the president of the Royal Academy, who was a great rival. Gainsborough was one of the founding members of the Royal Academy. Is that he right? was one of the founding members, but he never really got too involved. He was always too, too, he kind of stayed slightly aloof of that. So what kind of a role did Sudbury itself play in the formation of his attitude to landscapes and, and what he did for the landscape movement? It provided the food for his imagination. It was something that lived with him all his life and it was hankered after the kind of um, landscape that he saw around here. He built a studio and a showroom in his garden. He, he really positioned himself to be absolutely heart of the, of the sort of Georgian art world. He set up business, portrait and artist and also drawing for engravers and various things that he did to earn uh, money. And, and then, very tragically, his first child died, Mary Gainsborough, about the age of one and a half, and his father died in the same year, 1748. And they moved to, to Sudbury and uh, moved back into the town. Paint, he painted around here what were called conversation pieces, which were sort of figures set in the landscape, which were very fashionable at the time. And Gainsborough made money from doing that. So this image I have of the young Thomas Gainsborough walking around the water meadows with his sketchbook, floating along in this, this ethereal dream, actually kind of gets tempered slightly by the fact that he was clearly a shrewd businessman and prepared to try a lot of skills in order to keep, keep his I, craft alive. Absolutely, because he had to... That was his living, you know, he had to. He had a family and living. He needed to make a living. And so, yes, absolutely. But that picture you've got isn't, I think... 100 miles from the truth. You can't help looking at a Gainsborough landscape and think, thinking that there's, there's always a kind of slight evocation of Suffolk and, and the place that he kind of kept in his mind this kind of idyll that I think was his youth and child, childhood and youth, really, I mean, really his childhood here in Sudbury and, you know, the water meadows that he, he, he used to experience really haven't changed. They flood, so no, they've never been built on. 
and every some of the cattle come and you know and the you, know, you can imagine a Gainsborough drawing with the cattle and this sort of thing. So it's actually actually it is it is rather wonderful that Sudbury has this wonderful heritage landscape and the heritage of silk too. And so, yes, of course. So the industrial heritage is all wrapped up with the landscape from the way it's been and shaped. with and with Gainsborough, it all links because Gainsborough's family were all weavers. It was wool in Gainsborough's time, mm-hmm. but became silk um, in the late eighteenth century. Um, when the silk moved out of Spitalfields in London and moved to moved to Sudbury, and you know it's amazing because it's re- it's remained here. Things kind of take hold in Suffolk and they kind of remain. And ninety five percent of woven silk in Britain comes from Sudbury, which is is extraordinary. I mean, it came from very humble beginnings. In fact, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, well, Miss. Carter, as she was before she became Mrs. Andrews, was part of the Carter family that Gainsborough's father was in debt to. So it was a, it's an interesting background are, to the picture. The Andrews are the subject of one of his most famous uh, uh, portraits. Uh, yes, absolutely, in the National Gallery now, which shows Sudbury in the background and show Mr. and Mrs. Andrews in the foreground next to an oak tree, which is still living and still there. Well, on that note, should we have a look at a few of the, uh, your favourite pictures? Of course, yeah. <laughs> this one is a late landscape. It's around 1782. It was exhibited at the Royal Academy then, and it, it shows a cottage at, at sunset, and it's a very, very typical of Gainsborough's late landscape. It's not topographical like his early landscapes. It's very much about evoking a sense of a place and a feel of a landscape. So he would play with three dimensions. He'll have, he had sand and twigs and a mirror and a candle, and he would play around with the three-dimensional landscape models to play with the composition, and then he'd use those, broccoli, and he would use, <laughs> he would use those to create this landscape. Of course, he'd done lots of observation of trees and everything. They're wonderful images. I can see the broccoli here. It's making me yeah. hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he said he had nothing to do with details. It was about the emotion. It was about the, the feel, the, very much the feel and spirit of the landscape that, that Gainsborough really manages to capture. There we go. Oh, I, wow. I, I like this for lots of reasons. I, I like Tell it. me what this is. It's called The Pitminster Boy, 1769, and what it depicts is a boy with a set of brushes and a palette with all the artist's material. And the story is that he was, he was kind of an apprentice and a, an assistant. And I just think it's, it's charming because it's kind of Gainsborough remembering his own roots, his family, and that simplicity. And there's a real... A real life in the, and a real, just a real 18th century boy looking out or looking towards the artist there with the brushes. And I just think it's, it's a, most, a most charming and affectionate portrait. I can see what you mean as well. The light on his face just adds such life and movement to it that it continues Absolutely. to live. And it's remarkably simple. Mm. But it's deceptively it? simple. Is deceptively it? simple. <laughs> you know, well, Could I do it? <laughs> yeah, we, we've sure. all got, we'd all have a long way to go to get to get to this. But um, but that's the thing, isn't it? You yeah. made it look so simple. Yeah, many many artists in many different ways have been inspired by the landscape and uh, this place in particular. Absolutely, absolutely. So Maggie Hamlin is still working has a studio in London and Suffolk. And also Cedric Morris. We have a, the world's biggest collection of Cedric Morris, who set up an art school, the East Anglian School uh, of Painting and Drawing, which is set up in Dedham and then at, then in Hadley. So yeah, absolutely, it's very rich, and that's that's a lot to do with the the nature of the landscape. I think a lot of the inspiring people I've been hearing about today who've 
action so much change in their lifetimes and left a load of legacy are people who both take the time it seems to become immensely skilled and put in the hard graft but are also pioneers and open to kind of breaking the rules and doing things differently and um, yes. maybe just playing around with with new ideas that might go wrong Ab- absolutely well I think it was and I, I, I don't want to misquote it but it was Gainsborough said about genius and sort of regularity they go together like oil and water or something it, it kind of <laughs> he had this idea it was quite a mercurial figure Gainsborough he worked very very hard to the point where he was reported as dead um, when he was in Bath by the local newspaper from overwork and illness. And he was, but no, no, it was um, clearly it was a mistake. But, um, <laughs> they just um, haven't seen him for a while. But very often artists find that, as particularly if they're from a humble background, a modest background that Gainsborough was, that they often set themselves a relentless pace that they have to, to keep up. And I think uh, that was probably a bit true of of Gainsborough. Well, it's been fantastic walking around today and um, seeing a few of these pieces. So thank you so much for making yeah, the time. It's a great pleasure. Team. Thank you very much. Thank you. Gainsborough's House Museum is undergoing an exciting new phase. Mark took me for a walk around the newly constructed and extended galleries, which will make more room for temporary exhibitions, give the house a little more space, and allow visitors to catch a breathtaking view across the Sudbury countryside from the top. You can even see the spot where Mr and Mrs Andrews was painted. This renaissance also promises to make space for the vibrant artist community that continues in the area today. That's it from the Gainsborough Line. A visit to Sudbury promises so much more than we've been able to cover in one short visit, though. I took a beautiful walk across the water meadows in the sunshine before climbing back on board. In fact, there are some brilliant circular walks you can do throughout beautiful Gainsborough country, using the train for your connections. Maybe you'll be inspired to pick up a paintbrush too. Take a look at the Essex and South Suffolk Community Rail Partnership website, esscrp.org.uk, for a few route maps and ideas. And you can find out more about travelling with Greater Anglia at greateranglia.co.uk. Next time on Lives on the Lines from Greater Anglia Rail, we're off to East Suffolk. From an ancient burial ground to crashing waves, concertos and bustling market towns. It was during the Anglo-Saxon times, later on, that England as a nation was born. So really, we do feel the impact and the legacy of the Anglo-Saxons today in terms of our, our language, structures in society, and so many other ways as well. If you've enjoyed our journey today, make sure you share this podcast with a friend. See you next time. <laughs>